Welcome to this week's episode of Flight Suit Friday. I'm Nathan Shakespeare, and with me as usual is Sam Haffensiner. What up, Nate? How's it going? Good, man. Good. Glad to hear it. <laughs> um, this week, we'll talk about uh, SISM, or uh, Critical Incident Stress Management. Uh, we got a couple guests today, other ATC members, bringing us an important topic. All right, to start with the shout-outs today, I'd like to give a big shout-out to Houston. About a week before Christmas, they uh, medevaced a uh, mail uh, just south of Galveston, about 30 miles offshore in extremely poor weather. Josh Wombald, Dan Chase went out, had a uh, an awesome flight, uh, tough time getting to the to the boat and then back to the hospital in Galveston. Um, really nice job medevacing the guy on Josh's second AC duty. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, Texas is uh, killing it there, too. I heard Corpus Christi uh, picked two POB off a vessel taken on water, South Padre Island, 68-foot fishing boat to hit the uh, jetty there. Uh, I think that was Logan Swan and Andrew uh, Zeibel. Uh, Zeibel, I'm sorry if I got your name wrong there. Uh, first case for Logan as an AC, so so good on him. Lots of good firsts. Yeah. Hey, man, I just wanted to throw another shout-out there. Uh for all you aviators sitting there in your underwear in front of your desk at your kitchen table, you're not going into work. I know how hard it is uh, having to restart your computer three or four times so you can check that email. So keep up that good, good hard work. Good luck with that VDI. Yeah, man. It's great. All right. News for the fleet. Well, the uh, AHARS at this point is probably a week or two into uh, the student sessions for the spring. Um, really, really excited and stoked that we got that training uh, back on track and were able to uh, get out to a story to provide that uh, for swimmers, mechs, and uh, pilots, uh, both 65s and 60s. Uh, if you haven't ever been, uh, keep applying. Uh, keep sending up your name to uh, the Stano, and uh, it's it's great training. I, I can speak from uh, experience. Uh, and secondly, for uh, news, we I don't know if you've seen it out there, but uh, the Quad P um, up at headquarters are putting out uh, a publication called Glide Slope on a quarterly basis. Uh, kind of highlights everything that uh, what is it, Avenge safety uh, operations and uh, like acquisitions acquisitions yeah so they're uh, highlighting you know the big big news of the uh, of the quarter and and uh, pushing it out to you guys so uh, good stuff and I think I saw a request from the uh, the guy who was putting it together if you got good pictures uh, to include in in that publication send it his way you can find it uh, through your AOPS, I would assume. And we're recording this episode about uh, two weeks before AHAR starts, so hopefully Sam didn't just jinx it by saying AHARS is well underway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, 65 podcast listeners, let's dive into this episode. Uh, today I got uh, Jane Pena and Logan Donahue, two of our uh, SISM experts here at ATC Mobile. Uh, we're going to be talking uh, a little bit in depth about what SISM is, um, what it's like to go out in a case that might be tough for you and your crew when you get back, and uh, just uh, get some of their perspectives on uh, on how we can deal with this as a uh, community. So today it's me talking, and I've got uh, Ryan Vandahai here, Shakes is out for the day. Uh, welcome, Jane, sitting across from the table for me. Uh, how you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. All right. Logan, you out there? Yeah, I'm out here. Uh, thanks uh, for having me as well. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, for the two of you, we're just going to start with a quick background. Um, Jane, if you want to start first, just where you're at now, where you were before, uh, you know, a little bit about your SISM background as well. Yeah, perfect. So um, I joined the Coast Guard back in 2008. 
Uh, I was a civilian, uh, married to my husband, who was at the time an enlisted coastie. So I was an enlisted spouse. Mm-hmm. Went, joined the Coast Guard. Um, sent me around to a couple of places. Um, started flying in two thousand and nine. Uh, was when I went to flight school. Mm-hmm. First unit was Elizabeth City, North Carolina. So got there in 2011. And um, that was where I did my SISM training, okay. which was a week up in, I want to say, Virginia Beach. And then from there, they sent me to Air Station Kodiak, mm-hmm. which was a three-year tour. Nice. And then um, I'm actually coming up on my third year here at ATC. I'm set to transfer this summer. And you're the in the 60 division. Right? I'm at, yes. Thank you for helping me with my background. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> I am uh, I'm a 60 uh, division pilot here. Awesome. Yes. And uh, how about you, Logan? Where have you been and uh, where are you at now? Yeah, so uh, straight from high school, went to the Coast Guard Academy. It's 2012 grad there. Uh, went straight down to flight school. Graduated flight school in about 2014, and I head out to sector North Bend. I was there from uh, 14 to 18, and then uh, just like Jane, I've been at ATC here for about two and a half years. I'm in the 65 uh, stand division. Just last year, I took over as the 65 FSO. Um, got my original SISM training out in North Bend, out in D13 up in Seattle, and I've gotten a uh, a lot of like side training, strategic management, system, family and children advocacy and stuff there. So uh, since I've been here, I've kind of taken over as the lead system and, and victim advocate peer uh, for the area. So Nice. That's, that's outstanding. Uh, Logan, can you uh, just give us a brief synopsis of what SISM is, what it stands for, what you guys do? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So the acronym SISM itself is uh, Critical Incident Stress Management. And there's a lot of old studies that uh, kind of of where it started from. And it's kind of this idea that like these studies are from like the nineties when the, when the concept kind of started, it even goes back to world war one, but like about 80% of Americans are exposed to traumatic events. Wow. There, there are studies that say that 50% of disaster workers are likely to develop significant distress. Remember there's like distress and eustress. The eustress is the good stuff. And then we look at first responders, that, that number in, increases exponentially. So, so when we look at critical incidents, which, which are really anything that has the potential to create like harmful human distress in your body and overwhelm your usual coping mechanisms, that's a critical incident. And you can imagine in, in any first responder world, uh, one, we can kind of handle those things a little bit better than maybe your average citizen, but, but eventually stuff is going to overwhelm our usual coping mechanisms. So the idea of this system is, is a crisis intervention, and it's a short-term process to kind of mitigate um, that response. It's not therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, specifically, like, we're not mental health professionals, uh, at least at this level. So that, that, that's really one of the key things. But, you know, um, we train first responders to be peers, a system peer, and that's what we're, your normal Coast Guard person is going to be qualified as a system peer. To, to bridge that gap between um, the mental health professional and, and the person experiencing the stress. So, so you don't have to describe, you know, what we do in the helicopter or, you know, the rest of the swimmer doesn't have to talk about the deployment or, you know, what SAR means, the acronym SAR. So right. the, the goal there is to kind of teach people the basics of crisis intervention to bridge that gap for the mental health professional if needed. All right. Nice. That's uh, certainly important for the job that we do. I feel like uh, we're accustomed to getting some of these cases now that uh, you get you get done after the fact, and it maybe it seems normal, but it really is abnormal what you may have just done. Um, what does it take to be a, a SISM peer, Jane? Like, how do you how do you get to the training? What do you do? 
Uh, well, it's all volunteer based. So you first, as obvious as it sounds, you have to want to be a SISM peer, right? Right. Um, but beyond that, it's just sort of a willingness to learn, um, a willingness to listen, a willingness to respond to people who might need you and they might want to talk or they might not want to, um, they might not even want you there. Um, so just a, a willingness to, to go respond, which is honestly what brought most of us into the Coast Guard in the yeah. first place. Yeah. So I think that's uh, a big thing to remember for anybody thinking about doing this is that it, we, as Logan said, we are not pro- mental health professionals. We are just, and, and that's kind of the point, right? Like we want, as he said, we want someone to be able to go talk to these people that have experienced this. That's not like a therapist coming in because then of course, like so many of us are like, well, I don't need therapy. You know what I mean? But maybe they'd talk to Jane, mm-hmm. you know, like another yeah. pilot who knows what it's like to go out and do it. And then that, that, that can be enough. Okay. Yeah. Have either of you guys been called out to be SIS and peers? And could you speak a little bit to that experience maybe? Uh, sure. So, I mean, my first one was after Hurricane Harvey, um, I got asked to, to fly out to Savannah to talk to crews um, who, who had responded in that. And ironically, they were getting ready. I think it was Irma was the one at that point was, was scheduled to, to head direct to Savannah. So mm-hmm. literally I flew out on a Wednesday, talked to people on a Thursday and flew back on Friday and got out before the storm. Um, but, but I've also responded to um, larger events. I, I, I did the Pensacola um, active shooter uh, at uh, NAS Pensacola for the API students. I, I unfortunately had to go over for the crash. Jane was with me. Um, that happened in the at NAS Whiting. Um, and I've also done like just small like kind of things. So there's such a wide range that we can use SISM for ranging from natural disasters to, to, to small star cases. Yeah, yeah. Well, just give me a real quick uh, rundown. How, how do you get called or who gives a training? So you're... Uh, District EAPC, the uh, Employee Assistance Program Coordinator. Uh-huh. It's, you can basically Google or go on the Coast Guard portal just to be able to find them. But like they're in charge of the system for the district, and they will hold basic training programs. Like Jane says that she went to. Usually, you know, pre-COVID, they would hold one basic training at least a year in your area that you would be able to go to. And so you can reach out to them and get basically your name put on the list. You do have to go through uh, some some paperwork. Basically, your supervisor has to approve you being on the list because you could get called out at work potentially for any reason. So you have to get some approval. And they'll ask you some questions about, you know, why you want to do it. And and it's usually a three-day basic course is how, how you get that basic qualification. Okay. Yeah. And then, uh, well, back to the other question too, Jane, um, some cases that you may have had, uh, some of your experiences as a SISM. Yeah. So I've had, I've had the bookend of SISM, uh, call outs, I suppose. So the first one was in Kodiak. We had a local crew that just had a bad case. They had flown for probably a day or even two days on this case and it just hadn't gone well. What was, uh, can you give any of the details on, on what kind of case it was? Um, sure. So they had gone to respond. If I'm remembering properly, it was two men who were out in the backwoods together somewhere. And one of them had been attacked by a bear, I believe. Mm, so his rough. buddy kept him alive all night. Wow. Um, and really touch and go for hours and hours, you know, laying together, trying to keep him warm. Um, and our crew finally got on scene. And of course up in Alaska, it's, six hours to anywhere. I mean, it's the response times are, can be very lengthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so got on scene. Um, and the gentleman who'd been attacked by the bear clearly looked up at the helicopter 
uh, and then probably at that moment died. Oh, man. And so they had just fought to get there. They had made it. His buddy had kept him alive all night. And I mean, they brought him in the helicopter. They worked on him. It's not our job, as you guys know, to to decide if someone has passed away or not. So they got him to care. But um, it was rough for them because they had just worked so hard to get there and gone through so much and flown so hard and everything else. And to see that he was alive when they arrived uh, was especially tough. Yeah. And so, and, um, and they just wanted to talk about it. It was great. It was just good to come back. And so my, I was there, um, a rescue swimmer, SISM peer was there. Um, everybody, I think we had four SISM peers there and they were all air crew, mm -hmm. um, because that's an important piece of this. And, and Logan alluded to it where you, you, you need to talk to somebody who knows your job. So if a boat crew goes out and experiences something really hard, they're not going to talk to me. They're going to have to explain what they were doing and what the acronyms mean. And they're going to talk to a boat crew SISM peer. And then it just makes everything smoother and easier. And you yeah. know, you're talking to somebody who can understand. Yeah. Um, and so uh, that on the, I guess the smaller side, and then Logan mentioned as well, he and I went out to Pensacola to respond to the class A mishap out there where yeah. we um, lost a Coastie student. Uh, and so we were talking to entire squadrons um, and talking to people from both North and South Whiting because mm -hmm. um, there were connections across the fields there with the crew. Uh, and some people, every, everybody was, I didn't have anybody take me aside uh, individually uh, except for one person. And this was sort of an interesting aspect of, of SISM um, in this particular case. And she said, hey, I am not personally affected. However, my roommate very much is. And so how can I reach out to her? What can I look for? How can I help her? Yeah. Um, and so I thought that was actually, to be honest, an aspect that I hadn't really run into yet. But she, um, she wanted to know how to help her friend. Yeah. Can I ask so you what your to answer to, to that was? I'm sorry? Can we ask, what was your answer to that? Oh, how do absolutely. you respond um, to a question like that that's tough? I said, yeah, it was tough. Um, I said, firstly, that it's definitely okay to ask people what they need from you. Mm -hmm. Like they know that they're going through a hard time. Um, you know, they're going through a hard time. We don't necessarily need to tiptoe around it. You can just say, look, I know it's hard right now. What can I do for you? Mm -hmm. um, so that I told her was, was a, the first thing that I would suggest. Um, and then just also make sure that she is taking care of herself. Is she still eating? Is she still sleeping? Is she having nightmares? Is she eventually, I mean, you, you certainly need to grieve and that's different for everyone, but how long has it been since she saw friends? How long has it been since she's gone out and just making sure that her support system was around her. Um, and then I also just passed on the local resources, um, in case she needed yeah. sort of the higher level. Yeah, I see so, it as absolutely. It, it's so important too because you know that that crash in particular affected such a broad range of people. Like I don't even think you needed to be down here. You could be somebody at a different air station somewhere. For sure. And just think about it, right? Like a lot of us flew in either the T six or the T thirty four, and you know having a crash like that doesn't necessarily only affect the people that are that are surrounding that that specific unit. Um, the other thing I thought interesting, I wanted to ask you too, was you know I've been on a few cases where. I've picked up somebody who the swimmer is actively working on in the back and then we drop them off at the hospital and then that is the that's it. I don't know what happens after that, right? Um, and I, I think that's one of those situations where, you know, I, I personally wish I had talked to somebody about it because I have questions and, and I don't know, if, Logan, if you want to talk to that, like how we, 
how we get into, you know, being able to go talk about that. But even in your normal cases where you, you don't know the outcome, those can affect you as well. So the hard part about our job is no matter how, how used to hoisting and things we are, they're going to be aspects that one, we can't detach our emotions from as much as, as much as we try to. And then two, like you said, Sam, like there, there are going to be times where we don't know what the outcomes are. There's always some back avenue that some people know somebody at the hospital and maybe we get some information, but there, there are tons of times that we just don't know. Mm-hmm. And, and that question can be in the back of somebody's mind for a long time. Um, and, and it might not be, it could be enough to, to elicit a reaction down the line or, or it might not, and it might not, it might just pass by, but you know, seeing some of the cases like I've been on it and, and seeing like what some of those trigger factors are for some people and not for others, you know, a case for me, example out of North Bend was we, quickly reviewing the case without getting into a lot of sad parts, but there was basically a family walking down the beach and the, and the Western coast, like beaches are a lot steeper and a rogue wave came and washed a, uh, a father carrying a baby carrier and a toddler in the back into the water. Uh, two helicopters got on scene extremely quickly and saw that the, the backpack baby carrier pulled it out and no, no child in it. And, you know, for me at the time, I was a one year co-pilot maybe, maybe then, and and got on scene and um we weren't the the crew that picked them up anything up but just seeing kind of clothing in the water and uh you know that affected me but the other crew had uh people with toddlers themselves like their parents have toddlers in it so like that's gonna affect them a lot differently than it's gonna affect me still Mm -hmm. sad for everybody yeah of course but, but that connection is gonna be different um so so just communication is probably the biggest part about that um, and that could be harder at larger air stations, but understanding, uh, you know, where, where your crew is at, where you're at with, with connections, the thing they were going on, but, but specifically that debrief, I would say talking, uh, to, to everybody in your crew and saying, Hey, you know, this is what happened. Doing a good debrief after every SAR mission is, is what's going to at least give initial indications. Um, yeah, as a, as uh, a PIC or co-pilot, like what are some telltale signs that you uh, might want to look for knowing that somebody may have had a hard time with that case, but they haven't, they don't want to talk to you about it. Um, is there anything that like we can look for? Yeah. Um, so it's always going to be difficult at first cause you're, 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 um, you know, you're running high on adrenaline and things like that. But actually like you said, Tim, after that drop off, after that patient drop off or the survivor drop off, like, when their adrenaline starts to come down, you know, seeing how people, how people start to react, like, are they really quiet? Um, do they seem like anxious or jittery? Like those will be like initial signs, mm-hmm. but, but really after like letting some time pass and, and checking in as a PIC, I, I think the biggest thing you could do is if you have a hard case where, you know, really any case where you're dealt with somebody who, who was, you know, um, either extremely, extremely wounded and it was kind of gruesome with, with, for lack of a better word, or where you dealt with a death, like checking up in a day or two and then three days kind of like, Hey, how, I just want to check in. How's everybody doing? Um, and giving the opportunities to talk. Uh, but those, those initial signs, like a- any signs of stress, right? They, they can come in physical, uh, mental, emotional, behavior, or spiritual. Those kind of five categories we look at reactions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, physical, easy sleep problems, you know, overly tired, uh, restlessness in people, then like, you know, confusion or memory problems, obsessive thinking about things, 
and then behavioral like uh, withdrawal from people or uh, you know irritability, things like that are, are, are definitely your your main size of, of extra stress in somebody. Yeah. Absolutely. Jane, uh, you were, you started answering too, like, uh, Oh, Logan answered it far better than I did. But, um, (laughs) I, so we had one case where I was, I was the co-pilot. I was not the PIC, but, um, we had a guy die in the back of the helicopter and, um, he, it was actually, it was very providential that we were even there. We were out on an LMR flight Mm -hmm. and we happened to have 16 up and we heard him call for a mayday and they were like 10 minutes away. Wow. So it was just, this was off of Elizabeth city. Mm Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we, we picked this guy up, he had a heart condition and went out without his medicine and we picked him up and we took him to the hospital and, and he died on the way there. Um, and so for me up front, I didn't see it. Uh, I wasn't intimately, you know, I'm five feet away from him, but I don't, I'm not looking at him. Right. Um, and so, you know, for me, it was sort of like, Hey, that we were that guy's best chance. It was great that we were as close as we were. Um, and we really did our best and, and that was I was okay with that. Um, you know, whereas maybe for our guys in the back, like our rescue swimmer gave him CPR for 45 minutes. Yeah. Um, and, and I think switching off with the flight mech as well. And then on that particular case, we had a, um, cat pee cadet with us Oh, really? on a flight. And yeah. so, um, a couple of things that I took away from that are our PIC when we landed and it was all said and done, he did sort of say, Hey, anybody feel like they need SISM? And we all said, no, we don't, we're fine. Uh, but to Logan's point, um, and I, this is not to imply that anybody did anything wrong in that case, but like to check back in, in a few days, um, probably would have been great. And maybe I think for me, I might've taken the the cadet in particular aside, mm-hmm. maybe asked him, um, privately just so that he's not in front. I mean, to his perspective, all, you know, maybe he sees this super, experienced air crew that, you know, nothing bothers us, blah, blah, blah. And maybe he's not going to say something and maybe he did, you know what I'm saying? So, um, I thought it was handled well. I think everybody did fine, but just some, some things that I could take away, even though we, none of us did feel that we needed it. Yeah. I think that's a a really valid point for anybody in the front too, as a PIC or co-pilot, like stoicism is great, but being real stoic and, and, you know, that statue after the case doesn't exactly elicit, you know, your crew to maybe say, Hey, that sucked. Like, can I talk about it? Yeah. You know, cause like, Oh, well you didn't have a problem with it. So I guess I shouldn't have a problem with it either. Yeah. And there's, there's that aspect. And then also I would to, you know, Logan was talking about things you can look for, um, in your crew right after the case. Um, I would even be more worried about a guy, you know, if we went through some harrowing case where there was a death or I would be more worried about a guy who acted like nothing had happened. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that would maybe be a sign to me that he is not dealing with this. I actually had something pretty similar because when I was a junior co-pilot, went on a pretty rough case and we all got back from the flight and we ended up sending the swimmer home because he had worked on a patient and, the AC looked at me. He was like, hey, you good to go? I was like, yeah, I guess. I don't, I don't know any better, right? Yeah. And, like, I was still coming off the high of everything. And it was a year later, that case, oh, wow. like, gave me some nightmares. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, that's that's yeah. not fun. Like, what happened there? And it was all kind of at the beginning. I just didn't realize that it was something that I should have paid attention to. So I guess I'll lead into this question of how do you look out for yourself? Because looking out for others is what we try to do a lot, but looking out for yourself is equally, if not more important at times. So could you go into that a little bit? Yeah, um, that's a 
big one. And Logan, I know, is going to have a lot of good stuff on this one. Um, you need to watch out for yourself, not only as a first responder pilot aircrew who mm -hmm. sees this stuff, but then also as the SISM pair who's responding to it. Because, um, you know, and like I said, Logan, Logan's going to have good stuff on this. I know he is. Um, because you, you go and you respond to these things and maybe you didn't experience them, but you're going to listen to people talk about experiencing them for, for hours or days. And then that can affect you as well. So you just have to keep an eye out for yourself for the, for those same symptoms. Right. So maybe if you are, well, for myself, you know, if I, my patience all of a sudden gets really short, I feel like I don't need to be listening to these people anymore. Or, um, I, I'm, don't want to eat, don't want to sleep, like all the same symptoms, right. That you're mm -hmm. going to look out for in somebody else, except you know yourself better, um, which double-edged sword, right? Like you can maybe ignore yourself a little better yeah. or you can really, really keep an eye on it, but taking it seriously, I think is probably the most important thing. Um, Logan, what do you got on that, bud? I know you got good stuff. Yeah, it, we're, <laughs> it's, it's kind of, uh, being a system here sometimes is it, pretty parallel to just being the coach in general, right? We, we put others a lot of times ahead of our, our, ourselves and, uh, what we preach other people sometimes we're not as good as practicing ourselves so so when we're the PIC and we're so focused on uh you know our, our co-pilot or our crew members or the junior personnel who might not have experienced things like this before we forget sometimes to look in, inward and ask ourselves hey how am I reacting to these things or how am I closely how can I be closely affected by by what I just did and and Ryan like you said sometimes that stuff can can come back to bite you down the line when you least expect it so knowing your personal stress level um you know sometimes in, in crm we talk about the levels of stress there's your personality your kind of baseline and then there's your family and people around you then there's your work and you know the last thing is the situation that happens and if you don't have room on that stress curve then you're just gonna cliff dive right off of it and, and it's gonna be pretty bad at the end so understanding what your signs of developing stress are you know for me, especially, I can become really irritable when I'm stressed because in an effort to not lash out at folks, I will just get really quiet and short and almost logically and emotionless in my talking and things. Mm -hmm. And that can actually cause a lot of stress for other people because they don't understand what's going on internally. So for me, when I start to really get like that, I have to look at myself. And, and I'll be open honest, I, I've uh, used our resources before. I've called Coast Guard support twice uh, since I've gotten into Coast Guard um, to try to address my, you know, things that are going on in my own life when I'm, when I'm extra stressful. And, and I've had to turn down a SISM response because I was not in a good place. So it's the same way we look at I'm safe in, in the aircraft. Like, are you good to go out and do this? Or are there things that you're dealing with personally that are going to put a roadblock somewhere in this mission that could, that could endanger you and your crew or the person you're out there trying to save. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's you know, honestly, it always comes down to communication and honesty with, with yourself and with your crew members. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you touched on uh, Coast Guard support, Logan. Um, I mean, we're talking to two SISM peers here, but what other resources uh, do we have? You know, we've got SISM, Call CG support. What what else is out there? Is there anything else that we have access to? Uh, sure. So I mean, Coast Guard support is uh, the biggest one I'll throw out there because uh, they offer a, a wide range of stuff. So just calling the uh, I mean, I'll go plug the number and it's one eight five five two four seven eight seven seven eight, and that's one eight five five CG S U P R T. 
Coast Guard support. Mm-hmm. Um, you call them and it's 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. They will have a trained like basic counselor there to guide you in the right direction for what you need. I mean, even down to finances, legal advice and stuff, they can get you in the right lane. But through them, you can call and get a, uh, they'll help you search in your area for a counselor and you can get 12 free counseling sessions completely anonymous. Wow. Um, so, you, so it doesn't go into your medical record or anything like that. And I know sometimes that can be a large concern for people, especially in aviation, because they don't want to be grounded. Right. Um, and that's something, you know, we can talk about later down the line. But um, it is completely anonymous. You don't have to technically tell anybody that you're doing it. Um, you can just say, like, you have to snip out for a medical appointment or whatever, or whatever the day that you're going. So, so that's going to be like my number one resource. But uh, you can also reach out to the, the Coast Guard chaplain uh, service. And, and you don't have to be a religious person to, to use a chaplain. I had a great uh, chaplain at the Coast Guard Academy, Chaplain Fauntleroy, when I was there. That I don't know if he knew I wasn't a religious person, but I, I was able to go talk to him and it not be specifically about that. So it, like, it was just, he, they have this confidentiality that's different from, you know, a lot of other people that you can talk to. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there's a, uh, you can literally Google, you know, the chaplain phone number for the coast guard and you'll get a support number for that. You can also use the Hiswell app. It's actually an app to download it, uh, to download onto your phone. And, and that can have a bunch of resources there. And then we, we mentioned the employee assistance program coordinators for each of the districts. Yeah. Um, basically, that's his law services. So, uh, and, and and last if you're not if you're confident with your with your clinic and stuff, and that's not one of your concerns, like a lot of people, just go to medical and say, "Hey, I'm feeling like this, and I need to talk to somebody." That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like we have so many different options, and really appreciate you laying them out there because I think a lot of times, you know, we sometimes we just don't have the knowledge of all those of those options uh, afforded to us. It's the knowledge and sometimes it's just like kind of like people have a lot of, there's a lot of stigma for, for seeking mental health, which is funny because as soon as like you hurt your foot or your knee or, or whatever, you immediately go to some medical personnel to get fixed up. But, but, um, and some of it's warranted, but a lot of it's not warranted anymore. This, the stigma that you can't go fix the most important organ in your brain or in your body, which is your brain. Right. Right. Like we can go out and do all this other stuff and break our arms and we get fixed. And everybody's like, yeah, they're down for six weeks. because their arms broken, but you know, we're, we're doing a lot better. I think in the military and specifically in the coast guard in, in telling people like, Hey, if you're not mentally ready to do something like life is stressful, like you, we need you there a hundred percent, just like we need your body there a hundred percent. So yeah. Yeah. And they tell getting rid of that stigma. And so we're talking about PICs and, and being, you know, as we get into leadership positions as, as officers and stuff like that, understanding that aspect is super important as we create new leaders too. Absolutely. And we talk about mishaps and how much human factors plays a role. And you can go med down for having a broken leg or a broken arm. If your mind isn't in the right place, you're just as susceptible to putting a crew in danger, putting yourself in danger. So looking out for yourself, a personal level is just as important with the, with your mind as it is with your body. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's super easy to, to forget this stuff. Even, even for me when, uh, you know, being, I mean, relatively really trained as far, I mean, I haven't met a ton of other people that have gotten the opportunities that I've had and not to do my own horn, but like just been where I've been to be able to get these random trainings that I've gotten add on. And, and even me, like I can forget the importance of it sometimes. Um, I had a, a student flight 
a couple months ago where I went out and they were in the right seat and they were going to get to hoist. So we're out there and all of a sudden sector told us that there are people in the water nearby. So, so, you know, we, we rush over there and I'm like, okay, I can put the swimmer down from the left seat. So I do that. And so just imagine like you're in the left seat and I know the sixties can't see across anyways, but <laughs> like in a 65, you're all pretty close. But so I have my co-pilot in the right seat. She's not hoisting, but she's, you know, on the radios. I have my Mac and my right and my rescue swimmer. They're all on the right side. They can see what's happening. The shoreline's on the right side. We lower my swimmer. My swimmer swims. Uh, this person ashore comes back. I'm I'm really disconnected from what's happening the whole time. And I see the you know our hoisting platform to the left. We still have quite a bit of gas left. I'm like, okay, I'll just make sure I'll ask everybody if they're good to go. And then you know we'll get some hoisting and then we'll go home. Everybody comes back in. My swimmer, who's experienced, I've worked with him before. Um, and I asked him, like, yeah, it's like, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I'm good to go. Okay, everybody's good to go. Sure. And we hoisted and we came back home. And, you know, once I debriefed with everybody, the gravity of the situation kind of hit me. My, my other three crew members basically watched for, you know, about 10 minutes when you think about uh, 10 to 15 about the whole evolution. Um, Somebody, a body face down in the water getting swim in and, and, and come to think the swimmer's like, yeah, I don't think she's going to actually make it. And that did never hit me in the cockpit. Like mm-hmm. it never, I never fully grasped the whole situation. And, you know, I, I made sure to check in with every one of my crew members over the next week and, and talk to command a lot about like what happened uh, to make sure like everybody wanted to make sure there was no expectation to get the training done. And I, I know better than that too. So it, it, it's interesting how easily mission creep, can happen to you even when you're super experienced and know what to look for depending yeah. on how disconnected you are from the situation and, and not seeing the actual incident. And that follows through to any critical incident. You know, some Jane was saying earlier, like you might not be affected at all. And it's because of, you know, some, some point in the chain was broken for you mm-hmm. and, and you didn't get to the point where it affected you. And, and that, that chain's going to be different for every single person. So, Again, communication. I can't. I can't emphasize that enough. With talking to your crew and getting the whole picture before you choose make that next step, or before you let everybody just walk home uh, for the night. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Jane, for you, uh, it you went over for the um, over at to Whiting Field for the crash that happened there. Um, as a SISM peer, are you able to go farm out your services? Like, would you go out to, if there was a DOD need or? Yeah, that's kind of interesting. So we did obviously Navy Marine Corps over there. um, And so the DOD um, does not do SISM. Really? They don't. They have a different program, uh, which again, Logan, as our expert, uh, can can chime in with exactly what that is. I'm, I'm blanking right now. But um, so that was an interesting thing. So we went over. Um, first thing that we did was we had an all hand with the Coasties. Um, and so show the Coast Guard face to, to our people, I guess, as you would say. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we were specifically invited by the Navy to go speak with their squadrons, which we were really happy to do. Um, but it was, it was pretty interesting. Um, so this is, I don't know, maybe interesting, maybe not, but generally with SISM, um, you, we, we go out of uniform. Uh, we try to be in civilian clothes. And then of course that removes the rank, right? So mm-hmm. there's no issue that an O4 is talking to an E3 yeah, crew member or something. You're just point. Jane talking to Bob or whatever. Yep. So that's usually a very important piece. 
Um, something that Logan and I sort of discovered as we went and talked with the Navy was that we, we were out of uniform, but I think it would have been better if we had been in uniform because all they saw were a couple of guys walking around in civilian clothes and didn't know them from anybody else. And then mm -hmm. Logan and I sort of found ourselves continuously like essentially doing what we didn't want to do. Right. Because you try to get you, you try to be up here. You try to be on their level. I do your job. I know what you're going through. Yeah. Um, whereas normally that's understood, but with the Navy, we had to explain it, right? We had to be like, no, we're pilots. We have gone through flight school. We know what basic instruments are. We know what phase she was in. We get it. Yeah. Um, and not to, again, not to toot our own horn, but you, but that's the whole point, right? You, you have to have that commonality. Otherwise, why would anyone talk to you? And so that was an interesting thing that came out of that experience going to talk to the DOD. Um, and Logan and I both discussed it afterwards and we were saying, Hey, if God forbid, if something like that ever happens again, we would go in uniform. Yeah. We would go in a flight suit. Yeah. That's um, interesting. Which I think would identify us. It, it, it's interesting. Cause it's like different, different clothes doing the same thing in different communities. But, um, so, uh, we, I think, I think we did good work over there. Um, everybody was really receptive to us, even though they, they didn't necessarily have the SISM program that we have in the Coast Guard. Um, so uh, people did come and talk to me. Um, everyone was very happy to have us there for what we, we could provide. And, mm -hmm. and we just tried to do our best and kind of bounce around between the squadrons or having small group discussions and checking in with everybody. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And, and Logan, you, didn't you have an opportunity to go down to the border for, uh, some SISM work? Uh, yeah. So I did, um, that was 2019, summer 2019, because we were sending so many coasties from across the country down to areas of the border to assist department of Homeland security, uh, and stuff going on down there. They, they tried to get SISM peers that could go for several weeks in a row mm -hmm. to some of the, to the, the central command areas. That, that, that they were based out of. So um, I was out of El Paso, Texas for two weeks um, working with three of the uh, border patrol facilities down there. Um, and, and, you know, the, so yeah, we do do cross service things because SISM was actually created like, it was, like firefighters, you know, policemen, all kind of first responders right. uh, was where it was originally created for. And in the military, it was analyzed a lot there as well. So, um, there's not just military people trained. So, so there are people who know, like, uh, Kristen Cox, I'll throw her name out. She's one of our system experts across the Coast Guard. She's out in D13. She's mm -hmm. the one who trained me. And, you know, they know people, they know other experts, they know people from other organizations and they can kind of liaison out if they need to, uh, to, to, to use members. So, um, the, the process always should kind of come from those uh, employee assistance program, those district coordinators. Um, they, they know who, what SISM peers they have in their districts mm -hmm. and, and they're, and they're people that they want to use. Cause I'll be frank here. Jane said it's a volunteer thing, right? So just like in every other volunteer thing, you get some people who may not eventually actually be suited for it. Yeah. Um, so those, those, and, and, and that's just reality. Like, so we know people who, who do mean well sometimes are not as suited for, for some jobs as others. So those district DAPCs know in their area who their strongest people are, um, who, who to bring in as like a side person. Okay, I'm going to pair Logan with James. James only done one thing. Logan's done a couple other things. That way Jane gets more experience, but I have somebody there who I know is going to respond. Right. So so it's 
that the key thing I can say to anybody if, if at a unit, if you say you need, uh, you think something happens that needs SISM, is, is to make sure you use the kind of the correct chain, get your chain of command to, to call the EAPC so they can use the appropriate people uh, in the area that they know. Um, I've definitely seen that circumvented, and uh, I've had I had somebody on the road in North End driving up to Astoria because a CO requested something from the other CO. Meanwhile, the employee uh, coordinator is actually calling people to try to see if they're available to go to Astoria. So <laughs> just yeah. like everything else, people who mean have good intentions, we don't follow the process. Um, Doesn't turn out yeah, the it, right like, way. Yeah, yeah, it can, it can screw some stuff up. It was interesting doing the, the DOD thing because um, we went over there to talk to the coasties specifically. We were, we were asked. You know, we wanted to address our coasties face to face. You know, I mean, at one time in flight school, there's like 200 people between students and instructors, and and because of the Coast Guard connection to that incident specifically, we needed to address them directly. But then, yeah, like I said, we were we were requested to to stick around for another day uh, to, to to assist because they just didn't have the numbers. Yeah. Um, so they needed anybody who was trained in any kind of they had fleet and family service members. There there are things called sprints. Um, I couldn't even tell you what Sprint stands for, but I think the T is team, um, if I made a guess. so um, Sounds right. Yep. Yeah, yeah, right. So uh, they they just didn't have the numbers in the area to help. So they needed, uh, in order to touch everybody on some level, uh, again, which is kind of what Cisna is about. We just want to, like, touch base. Because like I said before, we're not mental health professionals, so... We, we just need to touch that first base and then give people the resources so that, uh, one, they can recognize if they need more help. Uh, and then they have the ability to, to either reach back to us to get that extra help or have the resources in front of them to go, okay, I've been feeling like this for a long time. It's not getting better. My normal coping mechanisms are no longer helping. What's my next step? Yeah. Well, Logan, Jane, thank you so much for being on the show. Before we... Uh, give you one last opportunity with one final question uh, for everybody listening. All of the support documentation and all of the numbers that have been mentioned in the show today are in the show notes uh, on your podcast app. So be sure to look those up uh, and give you quick access to those for Jan and Logan. The goal here for me asking you on the show was to help normalize some of these feelings and looking out for yourself and others in a mental health capacity. Do you have any final, final words for the fleet or for your friends out there with regard to what we've talked about today? What a good question. Um, yeah, I guess whatever you're feeling or going through is normal. I would say, um, whether that is that you just did a hard case and you feel fine with it mm -hmm. and maybe you'll continue to feel fine with it. Um, that's fine. That's normal. Um, maybe you just went through a case where everybody else seems to be dealing with it perfectly fine and you're not, and that's normal too. So without trying to get too like woo woo about it, right. Um, don't want to get cheesy or anything, but that's fine. Whatever you're experiencing and whatever you're feeling is okay. And if you need to go talk to somebody about it, then please do. And it doesn't have to be, I mean, I'm, I realize this podcast is about schism, right. But even just like pull your buddy aside go have a beer and like, you know, talk about it. It's, yeah. it's good. It's all right. And that's hugely beneficial. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, that's right. What you need. Logan. Yeah. Uh, echoing that, um, again, communication is, is just the biggest thing. So, and that's one of the largest things in our aviation community, right? That's how we gain experience from star cases in general is talking about it. So 
talking about our reactions to the thing can be just as helpful as talking about the case itself. You know, it, most of these things that people are feeling, uh, the last like kind of quote plug I'll put in is that, you know, these are normal reactions to abnormal situations. So if we can normalize people talking about the difficulties they experience after the stressful event, then we're going to only continue to make better pilots and better air crew members who are able to handle things themselves and, and help people out, uh, in, in their chain of command or in their division or, or, or they're just in their air crew and, and get through this stuff together. You know, we're, we've done a lot better mental health wise again, and I can only hope that we continue to push the normalcy of talking about difficult situations with each other. So it's not awkward to say, yeah, I uh, actually always went to my counselor today and this is what we talked about. If we can make that normal for everybody, then uh, I'll be a pretty happy person by the time I got out of Coast Guard. Oh yeah. All right. Well, that kind of wrapped it up. For anybody looking to hire a uh, lead SISM person out there, I feel like uh, you got Logan and Jane here. <laughs> Mainly Logan, let's be honest. <laughs> uh, th- thanks to both of you so much for uh, for joining us today. This is awesome. Really good chatting with the two thanks of you. Thanks so much for having us, man. This is a great topic. Yeah. Absolutely. Glad I could, uh, glad I could call in. Yeah, Logan. Sounds good. We'll, uh, we'll see you guys. Is that really what you guys end with? Every time. Always. Oh, wow.